Okay, 1 Peter chapter 2. We're just going to read two verses together today, just two verses. So they will appear as if by magic on the screen behind me. The magic's taken a bit longer today than it normally does. But there you go, still still works. Just have to wait. Okay, here we go, let's read this. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conducts among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let me pray. God, we thank you so much that uh, despite the freezing cold weather, we know that uh, we now walk in um, the sunshine, the light, the warmth, the goodness of your love. I was reading this morning in Jeremiah where it says that you, not only do you do good things to us and in us, but you rejoice in doing those things. It's your pleasure, your delight to bless us, your people. And we thank you so much we don't come to uh, a distant, faraway God. We come to one that we can know intimately and personally, a God that's Uh, On one hand, the holy, powerful, mighty creator, but also at the same time is one we can call a a friend and a father. We can come and sing songs of love and praise and adoration to you. We pray as we study your word together this morning that you would speak kindly and graciously, but directly to our souls bring our lives back in line with you and your word, we pray. Amen. Amen. In uh, 1667, so a couple of hundred years ago, the the Dutch naval fleet um, sailed towards England. They came into the Thames estuary and then they sailed down the river Medway into Kent, which is in the southeast of England. And they attacked Chatham Dockyards, which is where the English Navy's main base was at the time, and caused all sorts of destruction and havoc. And uh, it was one of the the Dutch's most famous victories over the English. And surprisingly, I didn't learn about it at school. I only found out about it when I moved here. The English don't tend to tell stories of their defeats, just their victories. Uh, So when I, I was walking around the Rijksmuseum and there's all these paintings depicting this great battle, I thought, well, that's a nice story, isn't it? That's a nice myth. And then looked up to discover that this actually happened. So I thought, well, I better find out what, what, how, how, how did the English manage to lose? Like, there must have been something had gone wrong, you know, that they'd, someone had sent them the wrong letter and they'd gone to the wrong place to fight the battle. Must be some reason why the Dutch defeated us. Um, and there is actually is that at the time, this is at the end of the Second Anglo-Dutch War, and they'd actually begun to negotiate a peace treaty. They weren't at peace, they were still technically at war, but they were negotiating a peace between the two countries. Uh, And the English had kind of run out of money, so they'd stopped paying a lot of their troops. 
They'd also assumed that the Dutch Navy was a lot smaller than it was. And basically, they thought, we're kind of, we're kind of safe. You know, although we're kind of technically at war, we're not really. So when the Dutch attacked, it was, it was a surprise. They, just, they weren't prepared at all because essentially they didn't really, they weren't acting and behaving as though they were at war. They, they thought it was essentially peacetime or at least something that looked a bit like, a bit like peacetime. And in our lives, as those of us who are believers in Jesus, followers of him, who call ourselves Christians, we often live the same way. We, we know that, that the, the Bible uses lots of language about uh, the Christian walk being, uh, it says in, in 1 Timothy that we're to fight the good fight of the faith. It says in James, what causes quarrels and fights among you is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Even in this passage we just read, it said that the passions of the flesh wage war against our soul. Lots of aggressive military language, but yet we still behave as though we're at peace, as though there's, there's, there isn't a war going on, that we don't need to worry, and we don't need to worry actually. But we, the way we live, as believers, the attitude that we take into life is really important. Goes on in 1 Peter to say, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to someone to devour. If you go to the, the zoo, you go to artist zoo, if you go to the lion enclosure just before feeding time, you know, the rest of the time, the lions are probably the most um, boring animal in the whole zoo. The lions want to go and see them because it's a lion. And then you get there and they're always asleep. They're just, just what they do. The lions just kind of sleep. But then just before feeding time, they're prowling around. They've got these gates that they pull up to let the lions in to go and get their food. And they're kind of wandering around aggressively. And sometimes they'll stop and they'll pause and they'll start scratching and banging against the door and it's quite ferocious and you think, I don't want to be in there. And that's the same language that the Bible uses here. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And the Bible uses this kind of imagery for a reason, that the Christian life, it's not like a war, it is a war. And that sort of language might scare you a little bit, and hopefully, as we get into it, you'll, you'll understand where we're coming from here. But there's a war going on, and the, the battleground for you is your soul, is your heart. And we need to have the right attitude when it comes to how we're living. And Peter here, he starts these few verses, and it's quite a, a kind of a pivotal point in this letter where he's been unpacking all this beautiful, wonderful doctrine. Last week we were talking about what it is to be the church, a royal priest of the holy nation. And then he suddenly stops and he says, beloved, or like dearly loved ones. And you think, uh-oh, <laughs> you know, he's changed his tone here. And then he says, I, I urge you. And urge isn't really a strong enough word to translate what he's saying here. It'd be more like, I strongly urge you. It's interesting that he uses those two phrases together, beloved and strongly urge you. Sometimes I have to do that with my kids. 
pull them aside and say something really loving just before I tell them something that they really need to hear, <laughs> to make sure they really are listening and understanding what I'm saying. And sometimes, sometimes the Bible speaks bluntly to us and plainly and directly. Yesterday, I took the kids out. Uh, we went out on, on some ice and we were walking around. And uh, we, I went to a place where uh, I'd already seen some people skating, so I knew the ice was going to be thick enough because none of them had fallen in. And then we took the kids out and we started wandering around and we were having a great time. Uh, and I'd given the kids a kind of stay within this area, you know, don't go too far. Um, and then one of them said, oh, hey, should we just walk across to the other, the bank on the other side? I said, oh, great, let's do it. And as we were walking across, we got about kind of three quarters of the way across, about two meters from the edge. I put my foot down and we heard this crack. And it wasn't like a little kind of creak. It was like an audible, loud crack that all of us heard. And I saw this line underneath my feet go whoosh, just like this. Um, and at that moment, I had Millie, our youngest daughter, she's six years old, she was holding my hand, standing next to me. I didn't kind of say, oh, Millie, something really interesting has just happened. Look at this, look at this crack, isn't this fascinating? If we stand here too long, we might sink. I, I grabbed her by the arm, I said, Millie, go! And we kind of tried to gently but quickly get to the bank as quickly as we could. And when we got to the other side, she burst into tears and she was upset. Partly because she'd heard the crack, but mainly because I'd had to act kind of so forcefully to get her to the, to the bank. You know, I'd, I'd shocked her. And that's because I wouldn't normally be quite so, use that sort of tone with her. And the tone that Peter's using here to us is really important. He's saying, I strongly urge you. It's, he's, he's saying something directly to us, to, right into your hearts that I hope is going to penetrate in this morning. He's speaking really bluntly to us. And he goes on to talk about how that we're, as he's already talked about at the start of the letter, that we're exiles in this world, that God's sent us here, but we have the, an ultimate home in heaven as believers in him. But part of being an exile in this world is learning to know what's going on in the world around us, learning to know what uh, things are issues in the culture, things that are going to be challenges to us as believers, things that are going to be opportunities. And right now, you'll notice in our culture, if, you, you know, if you're on the internet at all, I guess, that we're in what people would talk about as like a kind of a cultural moment, a moment in time where perhaps for the first time, people seem to be really waking up to some of the devastation, uh, basically, of the, the sexual revolution, which has been perhaps one of the, in the history books, in a couple of hundred years' time, that's perhaps how they'll define the last 50 years. That'd be one of the main things that's happened in the world around us, has been the sexual revolution. And for the first time, people are beginning to wake up to the fact that there's a lot of brokenness and devastation that's been left behind by that. When people talk about the Me Too campaign, there's this, there's this anger, there's this bubbling rage about what's happened. And a lot of it, to be honest, is there's lots of good there. There's, there's, it's important that people who have been abused and have suffered 
uh, uh, there's some advocates out there, there's some people saying that this is an issue, we need to talk about this, we need to do something about this. But at the same time, there's, there's so much hypocrisy out there that we can say, well, this is bad, don't do this, but, but pornography, that's fine, we, that's fine. We'll just accept that as part of the world around us. There's so much hypocrisy in it all. But the thing is, is that right now, us as believers, we need to realize that the world around us rightly is crying out for men and women who take these verses really seriously. It, it really is. If, if we, even perhaps a year ago, if, if I was to preach on this verse, I'd have had to have done a lot of kind of background work to explain. Because for, for anyone here who's an unbeliever, you'd be thinking, well, this is such, such old-fashioned language to use. We can just do what we want now. Whereas now, I don't think we need to explain it quite so much. Because hopefully this is a bit more obvious. Which says, abstain from the passions of the flesh. I think more and more that's what the world around us is looking for. Men and women who actually are in control. Who, who, who aren't just... Uh, lost and broken and causing pain and disruption all around them. And as exiles, we need to be aware of, as I said, the challenges and the opportunities, and we need to live differently. Our life isn't dictated by what we read about on social media. What we think and how we act isn't determined by the zeitgeist, the popular opinion, what people say, what people think. How we act, how we behave, is following the pattern that we find in the Bible. We want to live Christ-like lives. And part of that for us is realizing, as we said at the start, that there's, there's a war going on. There's this war against your soul. It says here that it, we're to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Now, the passions of the flesh, it doesn't explain here what that means. In other passages it does. So in Galatians 5, it says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Just partly for time, and partly because it is a big issue in our culture, we're gonna particularly arrow in in the issue of lust and sex and sexuality this morning, although this passage could talk about some of these other issues as well. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at three reasons of why, why we should fight, why we should wage war, and then as we unpack those, hopefully some kind of hows as well to do that. So first of all, we'll start with some, some kind of negative reasons. Some negative reasons of why we should fight. Because it's, it's an important question to ask. Why bother? Why, why fight? You know, what's, what's wrong with just living how we want to live? What's wrong with me just doing what my body naturally wants, wants to do? We have to realize that for everyone here, whether you're a believer in Jesus or you're not, that your actions have consequences. 
I hope that's obvious, that the things you do have repercussions, that sin has consequences, and that sex is, sex is like fire. It can be incredibly powerful and potent, but it can be incredibly destructive as well. There's a song that came out recently that uh, has been quite popular by Eminem and with Ed Sheeran in it as well, called River. And it's a fascinating song because it, it tells, fascinating is it's, it's, um, it's quite a disturbing song because in it he tells the story of what happens when a woman whose partner had cheated on her, she then goes and cheats with someone else. And as the song goes on, it tells the kind of breakdown of this relationship and all the different consequences of their actions and how in the end, both relationships fell apart. Her with her partner and then with the person she cheated with, that didn't happen to. She ends, she ends up becoming pregnant and then being forced to have an abortion. And you get this horrible story of the consequences of, their, of the actions of what's happened. Um, particularly striking in the song is the chorus sung by Ed Sheeran where he talks about all my sins need holy water. And there's this recognition in there that not only have they caused incredible pain, but something else, something deeper and darker has taken place. That there's something that they need atonement for. There's something even deep within their soul that needs to be fixed, that they're unable to do by themselves. Because the, the, the kind of the sexual ethic of our age, what people believe about sex is basically it's all about, it's all about appetite. That's, what, that's even what they would teach in schools these days, is fundamentally just do what pleases you. As long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, just do what makes you happy. Which in a way, you know, kind of makes sense. You know, as long, if, if, it's, if it's not hurting anyone else, I just do what I want. And that's what people around us believe. And I guess, hopefully, what the world is beginning to see is that that doesn't work. It is not working. It's not working. Surely anybody can look at that and see our attitude towards sex as a culture doesn't work. Because the thing is, it's based on this presumption that what, what I do only affects me. But actually, that's, that's not true. That's not true at all. Because one of, the, one of the greatest lies we can come into is that even as believers in Jesus, we believe that our sin, our disobedience is, is a personal thing. It only affects me. But it's not. It's, it's a social thing. It's actually an anti-social thing. What you do hurts other people. Whether you like it or not, whether you want it to or not, there are consequences to your actions which are disruptive and painful. Because the problem with this approach is essentially what it does is it, it dehumanizes people. It makes people less than human, really. Because if you're just saying, well, as long as it pleases me, I'll just do what makes me happy, then you're just using other people as kind of vehicles, basically, for your own happiness. You're just using other people to make you happy. 
and, and what's good for them, that's a secondary issue, if, if at all, if you're considering that at all. It just becomes about what's important for you, and you end up, essentially, you're, you're just abusing other people, you're dehumanizing them, you're treating them as something as less than they are. And not only is that, do we dehumanize other people, but you can end up dehumanizing yourself because you, you treat your own body as though it's something less than it is. Because we believe that we're all made in the image of God. And that gives each of us incredible worth and dignity. But when we start giving ourselves over to things that are out of our control, when we start giving ourselves and our bodies over to lust, actually we, we dehumanize ourselves. It says in Proverbs, well, it tells the story in Proverbs 5 about what happens when this man goes and sees a prostitute. It says that she takes the fill of his strength. What it means is that something's, something's robbed of him. Something's taken away. Something of who he is, who he's created to be, is, is lost. It's removed. It's taken from him. The thing is, what we need to recognize is, is the Bible says some pretty straight things about this, which please keep listening. Don't just switch off now because what I go on to say is really important. But as I read in that passage earlier from Galatians 5, you would have seen how it ended where it's talking about all those passions of the flesh. It says those that do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It says in Galatians 3, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And it says this, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. What we need to understand is this battle, that this fight is... It's kind of mortal combat. This is, this is a, a fight for your very soul. Now, it could sound as though I'm saying that for those of you who are believers, that you could lose your salvation, that you could be a Christian, and then you could do something so bad that you could then not be a Christian. Well, that's not true. That's the good news. Is once we believe that once you're saved, you're saved. Once saved, always saved. The perseverance of the saints. Actually, it's not you that has any control over your salvation. That's the work of God. He rescues you. He saves you. But we believe that salvation isn't just a once and f once, just a momentary thing, a justifying thing in that you're made right with God but there's this sanctifying work of God that comes, that he comes and works in you to help you work out your salvation. We were talking about last week about how we're now this royal priesthood, that the presence of God has come to live within his people, the church, and he's at work in each and every one of you, transforming you by his grace day by day. So that means that if the issue is is not one of flawless perfection. 
The issue isn't, okay, we just need to not do these things. If you do these things, you've failed. The issue actually is that we just, we're fighting, that you resolve to fight through the grace of God. That you think, well, this is gonna be a temptation issue in my life, um, and some, sometimes I'll fail. But by the grace of God, I'll keep fighting, I'll keep battling, knowing that he's won the ultimate victory, knowing that he's at work in my life all of the time. So that was kind of why fight number one, some more negative reasons. The second bit, hopefully is more positive, is that God, when it comes to sex, God, he just has a better plan. That's why we should fight and abstain, as the word uses here. That's why we should fight, because God's just got a much better plan. See, it's really important that we stay, and you guys all know this and can tell other people, because people often think that Christians just don't like sex. It's just this kind of evil, horrible, hidden thing. But God created sex, right? It was his idea. It was his plan. And not just for procreation, just so we could have kids, but for pleasure as well. This is God's idea, his creation, his purpose. If you read Song of Songs, a book in the Bible, there's no doubt in there that God made sex for pleasure. You just read this book and you think, whoa, okay, you know, this maybe I don't get your kids to read it, would basically be the advice. It's a pretty full on book. But God, God made sex. That's really important that we know that. A guy I know who was a, uh, he was a pastor for a few years in Johannesburg. His church, they rented a big billboard in the city and put a big poster up that said, Johannesburg loves sex. God loves sex, let's talk. <laughs> Which is very provocative and they got quite a response. But that should be our same message to this city. We might not quite say it in the same way with a big billboard, but Amsterdam loves, it definitely does love sex. But so does God. So let's talk about it. Let's, let's look at God's intention. If he made it, then we need to figure out, well, if he made it, if this is his creation, how does he suggest that we use it? <laughs> Do we just follow the world's model of how we use it or do we look at what does God say? What's his plan for it? And his plan is that sex is designed for the safety and security of marriage. Where two people are in a, a covenant relationship where they've committed to one another. Because I said sex is a, is a, it's like fire. It's powerful and destructive. And we kind of know that, but we treat it as though it's just like a match and we can just light it and blow it out. But if we're not careful, we, we, we don't know what else we're gonna set on fire. So God's designed it to be in that safe, secure place where we make a commitment to one person. That's really important that we know that and follow that pattern. And not only does God have a better plan for sex, but it's important that we know that, this is the most important bit, that God's pleasure, we're talking about more than just sex here, God's pleasure is better than the pleasures that the world can offer you. And so often we, we, we give in to small, fleeting kind of passing pleasures. 
small kind of titillating things. This is going to make me happy, I'll do it. And it doesn't work. Or if it does, it's a momentary thing. And we give in all the time, and yet there's a greater pleasure that God's put before us. It would be a bit like, it's difficult to imagine right now, but if in your backyard, it's probably difficult to imagine because most of you don't have a yard or a garden, but if you did, and it was a hot summer's day, and you had this beautiful swimming pool there, that sounds amazing, doesn't it, after a week like this? Oh, I could do that. If you've got this beautiful swimming pool there, and yet you wake up in the morning and think, oh, I really fancy a swim, so you get into the bath instead. It'd be silly, wouldn't it? You wouldn't do that. You'd go and jump in the pool. But yet, that's what we do all the time. We've got this beautiful, indescribable pleasure of knowing the living God, and yet we get in the rusty bath instead. A small, passing pleasure. And it looks, initially it might look appealing, but then we realize that it's not at all. That's one of the main ways, really, to defeat any sin in your life is to realize that not sinning is just better. <laughs> it's just better. It really is. Now, it says here, it has this word, ab abstain, as in where the word abstinence comes from, which sounds very old-fashioned. We think, what on earth does that mean? And it doesn't mean just to not do something. It doesn't mean just to kind of grit your teeth, clench your fists, and I'm just not going to do it. Actually, the word means something greater than that. It's kind of suggesting that we don't do something because there's something else instead. It's actually looking forward to there's, I'm not going to do that because there's a greater thing. There's a better thing to pursue, to live for. And the best way for you, if you're struggling, which I think we all are in different ways, it might not be lust, it might be something else for you, but if there's a passion of the flesh which has consumed you that you struggle with, the best answer is to fight fire with fire. That's the best way to do it. Which, as I said, isn't like a just clench your fists and pursue it, but we, we, we tell our hearts, we remind our hearts of this massive promise of superior happiness. There's something so much greater because the the main of this prowling lion the enemy his main weapon is to say to you this will make you happy that that's his number one artillery that's his big gun that he pulls out this will make you happy and yet our main weapon is god will make me happier because <laughs> it's true it really is and that's the answer. God will make you happier. The Puritan John Owen, he said, be killing sin or it will kill you, which is an important principle of just stamping out the little things before they become the big things. Be killing sin or it will kill you. And because of the cold weather, we've had some mice come into our house. And my wife, Jo, she's... She's got incredibly quick reflexes. So she'll see a mouse and she'll say, hand me something, give me like a pot. And she'll just, and she'll get it. She's got the mouse, she's done it a couple of times this week. She'll just catch the mice under the pot. Incredible, I don't know how she does it, because they move quick. 
so we caught one this week, and the kids were all around. So Joe kind of gets a book and slides it under, and they says, come on, kids, let's take the mouse. Let's release the mouse into the wild. And there's a green across from where our apartment is, so the kids will walk downstairs, cross the green, like, bye-bye, little mouse, have fun, see you soon. Go, make friends, populate the earth, have fun. What did the mouse do? It turned around and ran straight back towards our apartment. <laughs> it just ran back across the road and we're like, no, quick, get it. <laughs> and you see, that's so often what we do with the sin in our life. We kind of, we kind of stop or we kind of put a stop to it, but we don't kill it. We don't kill it. We just kind of let it linger we don't really sort it out. And there's a few ways to really kill it, to kill the mouse, to kill the sin. Um, I guess one way is just to stamp on its head. But the main way really is to run to Jesus who's already won the victory. who's already stamped his foot on the head of the serpent. who's already won this great battle for us is to run to him. It's to run to him. Because you, you, as I said, you can stamp your foot on it and kill it. And a good way to do that, a really practical way, is just to tell somebody. Just tell someone. If you're struggling with something, just talk to someone about it. Because the root issue may actually not be the thing you're struggling with, but it might be something deeper. For a lot of people, it's actually just fear. You're just scared of what people think of you. And actually, that then becomes an issue of just unbelief. If you're stuck in fear, it's just because you're not really believing God. You think, well, I, I can somehow, you believe, I can control this. I can, I can sort this out. And a good way just to say, do you know what, I can't. I need, I need help. I need God. It's just to go to talk to someone. Some, ask someone just to pray with you. and You, you will find that they won't mock you. They won't laugh at you but they will put their arm around you and they'll lovingly pray for you and they'll support you. That's, that's what will happen. No one in this place is going to condemn you or point their finger because you'll find that in many different ways we're all people with all sorts of different faults and errors and blemishes. There's no one here that's perfect. So none of us can point our finger. We're all here by the grace of God. But as I said, ultimately, we need to run to the one who's won the victory for us because it might even be for you that the habit, the issue, whatever it is, is so ingrained that the best way to describe it would to be like it's an addiction. It's just in control of you. And whenever you try to stop, it keeps coming back. But fundamentally, addiction is just a form of worship. And the best way to... to if you're worshipping something that isn't God, the best answer isn't just to stop worshipping that, but is actually to worship something else instead. That's how you get over an addiction. It's not just by no, 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 but oh, I'm going to give my life to something else instead. Because it's an issue of worship. It's just redirect your passion somewhere else. The third thing of why fight is the second verse that we read here, verse 12, where it says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable when they speak against you as evildoers, 
they may see your good deeds and glorify God. A great, a, a good in reason to fight, which he tells us here, is to win other people to Jesus. As we said earlier, this whole kind of Me Too campaign, the world is crying out for people who aren't just judgmental Christians, but with believers who, with love and care and kindness, are seeking to live differently in the world around us. And if we do that, that will be such a huge example. I remember when I was about 17, I was at school, I just started dating this girl, and I was with a group of friends. I had one of those moments where two people ask you a question at the same time. And one of my friends asked me, uh, they said, how long have you been seeing this girl? And at the same time, another one said to me, uh, when are you going to sleep with her? Those were their questions. Um, but they came at the, at literally at the same time. So I answered one of them and not the other. I said, oh, I've been, I said three weeks in terms of how long I've been seeing her. But then the other guy said, oh, you know, three weeks. And he was a sort of guy that was quite... He was, he was one of the sensible people in the school. You know, he was respected, he was looked up to, he was a, a good guy. He said, oh, three weeks. Yeah, that's, 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 about, that's a good amount of time before you sleep with her. Three weeks, that's good. Uh, it was one of those awkward moments where I had to kind of correct him and say, well, that's not actually what I meant. <laughs> I'm not going to sleep with her. I'm a Christian. And I didn't say it very confidently. I kind of muttered it under my breath. So my friends were like, what, what did you say? What, you know, what's wrong with you? And for a while, it was a bit like this verse that, that they kind of spoke against me because, well, why would you do that? It's just so, nobody does that. It's so old-fashioned and weird and so stupid. But then actually a few months later, a, a couple of people, a few of my friends came to me and said, look, I, just, I really respect you. I, I admire you for that position. A couple of girls spoke to me about it and with a sense of, even regrets about their own choices told me how much they wished they'd taken that path. And you see, when you take these sort of decisions, you, it's, it's almost like a, a bit of the kingdom of God just breaks out in the world around you. So even sometimes when people mock you, don't back off and think, oh, okay, well, I'll just, I won't bring up that again. The fact that they're criticizing you and mocking you, actually, that might be their first step to God. Honestly, honestly, that's probably what's going on, is that God's at work in them. He's gently and carefully pulling the strings of their heart, and he's using you to do that. Your life of obedience to Jesus that seems so opposite to what the world says, and they can't even comprehend it at all, and it'll be like a shock to them. It's like God's just jolting them out of their reality and saying there's something better. And the way they respond might not be positive to begin with, but God's at work. Pursue that. You know, even if they're mocking you, talk about it. Engage with them because God may well be doing something quite profound in their lives. Okay, let's, let's begin to finish up. Now, there will be, for some of you, just this nagging question of, Okay, there's this war on, and you, 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 you know that, because you, you feel like you're in a battle, sometimes every day. Maybe even today, you're in a, a battle, a fight. And maybe you feel a, a lot like you lose a lot. 
This is a struggle that has held you captive and you don't know how to break free from it. And you think, well, I'm a Christian and surely, surely, you know, I prayed. Why doesn't God just, why doesn't, why is this still an issue? And I think perhaps the best place for us to finish is to to come back to the, the Exodus story that we looked at earlier this year, if you were around. Don't worry if you weren't. But I was reading it again this week. There's a beautiful verse in Exodus 14 where Moses is leading the people through the Red Sea. And uh, if you know the story, the, the people of Israel, they moan a lot. And there's, there's a moment where even in this wonderful moment of rescue, which is such a profound story, that as believers excites us, this redemption of the Israelites, even in that moment of crossing the Red Sea, they're saying to Moses, oh, why? Look, is this really the thing we need? To, this, isn't, this isn't gonna be good for us. You know, they're chasing us, this is gonna be bad, and they're grumbling. And Moses just tells them and says, the Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. Whoa. <laughs> And that's what some of you need to hear. That not only will God fight for you, but he already has. He's already won this decisive deliverance for you. He's rescued you. We were talking last week about, as believers, we have this new status, this new position now, this new freedom in Christ. It doesn't mean that we don't struggle still, that we don't have difficulties and pain, but we have to wake our hearts up and remind ourselves of the reality of what God's done, that he's rescued me, that he's set me free, that I can walk free of these things by his grace, by the work of the Spirit in you. And I was, uh, talk to someone, you know, get them to pray with you. Remind your heart of the superior, much more beautiful, powerful happiness and delight that you can find in Jesus. Because, it, you know, so many things in life are just impossible without God. And the story of Exodus, which we came back to again and again, is you can't, but God can. And he has. He's at work in your life. Even through the struggles and the difficulties and the temptations and the pain, God's at work again and again. Little by little, he's transforming you. He's doing a mighty work in you. Okay. Let's pray and then we'll worship. Why don't you just stand to your feet if you feel comfortable to do so. Jesus, we want to take serious the reality that you call us to be those that fight like good soldiers. And there's a war going on. And we can feel the, we can, some of us can even feel this morning the, the bruises and the pains and the burns of the battle. And yet we know that you've ultimately won this decisive victory. 
that all of our mistakes and failures and regrets, all of our sin, that you paid the price for those things. That you died and you, you took the shame that we should feel and the guilt. You paid the penalty, the price, the sacrifice for us. And we can now walk in freedom knowing that you've washed us clean. That what Ed Sheeran was singing for, that holy water to wash away his sins, that you've come to us and you've washed it away by your grace. We can come to you this morning and we can worship now. We can sing songs of worship. And there's no ritual or sacrifice we have to go to because it's already taken place. We can come and let our souls sing delight and worship in you. And we want to pray, Jesus, that your grace would continue to strengthen us. Help us to fight. We know that it's not just a, God, would you come and help me, but God, would you come and do it through me? Would you come and work through me? Let's just come and sing and worship. Often the best thing to do is when God, maybe for some of you, you're feeling that kind of pang of conviction where God's, conviction's a good thing. It's just God speaking to you, telling you some errors in your life that you just need to bring to him. And the best way to do that is just to come and worship. Just let your soul just sing to God. Just receive his grace again as we sing.